0: That we can assemble and we can have joy unspeakable. A joy that's not contingent upon our circumstances, but a joy that is based on who you are and the fact that you're sovereign, in control, and good. When life doesn't feel right, our belief, our convictions, our theology holds us. When things don't make sense, we trust you. At least we're growing to trust you. When things are hard, we trust you. When things are good, we trust you. We bless you. We thank you. And today, Lord, with this time that I have, I pray that you would use me to encourage your people. All of us, Lord, are like vapors. And our lives appear one day and they vanish the next. But we know, Lord, uh, that there's a thing called eternal life. We're going to live with you forever in a place that you will make all things new and there will be no entrance of sin, sickness, death, or the curse that comes from the fall. So we look with anticipation to your return, Jesus, or to when we go to be with you. Thank you that Leela, Lord, is in your presence. And and after being with you, I know she wouldn't want to come back here. Um, Thank you, Lord, that she is truly experiencing joy unspeakable. So we pray for someone today who may not have a relationship with you. Someone, Lord, who's on the outside looking in. I pray that today you would move on their heart and allow them to ask you to be their God, to be their king, to be their savior, to be their Lord, that they might be born again. Would you do that, Master? And for the rest of us who know you, I pray, Lord, that we'll grow in our faith by the hearing of the word, And through dependence on the Holy Spirit. So help us now. As we come to your word. To get a word from the word. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Second Timothy. Chapter 4. We have Paul. The aged. Apostle. We have Paul the the church planter. We have Paul, the scripture writer. We have Paul, the gospel globetrotter. And he is in the final chapter of his life. And as we come to the final chapter of 2 Timothy, we get to see the things that are on Paul's mind. Paul is in prison again. He's in prison again. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul shares a portion of his testimony, and he talks about how he was in prison often. Now, if I had time, I would rewind and just share with you the times he was in prison, but let's just take the brother's word for it. He was imprisoned often. And if you're going to fight for the gospel, if you're going to fight for justice and equality, There may be a jail cell waiting for you. One of my heroes, Martin Luther King, went to jail 29 times. But the good thing about going to jail when you're God's man or God's woman is that sometimes God will use jail so that you can rest. Sometimes he'll use jail so that you can write. Because while Paul was in jail, God worked everything for good in that circumstance and allowed him to write these 13 Pauline epistles that we have today. So thank God for his imprisonment because 13 great things came out of it, the letters to the churches that we have today. So being in jail not only allows you to rest and write, and we know Dr. King wrote when he was in jail, but it also allows you to reach other prisoners. Oh, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul was in jail in Philippi, he didn't whine and moan about being locked up. He began to pray and worship God with his buddy, Silas. And not only did God hear, but the prisoners heard. And God began to shake that jailhouse before Elvis ever thought about singing Jailhouse Rock. That jail shook. The prison doors flew open, but the prisoners stayed in. Right before the guard was about to kill himself, Paul said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And through that miracle, Paul was able to introduce the jailer to Jesus Christ. And he got freed from his emotional, spiritual, and every other kind of bondage to meet Jesus Christ. And so God used jail for Paul and in Paul's life. And he could reach people. He could rest. He could write. And here he is now in 2 Timothy 4. And he is literally on death row. And he knows it. Other times he was in jail. He was... Confident that God would get him out because his ministry was not done. But when we get here, he says that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so Paul is on death row and he's ready to die. And let me pause here for a minute. He's on death row and he's innocent. So everyone that's on death row is not guilty. And everyone that's in jail, they are not guilty. The system can be flawed because it's run by flawed people many times with agendas. And so this is one reason why I don't support the death penalty at all. I don't. Because when we say we're quote-unquote pro-life, that's from the womb to the tomb. And we don't have a right to take someone else's life, especially in a broken system where by and large, people who die unjustly look like me, people of color, especially black men. And so when we think about the case right now in Texas of Rodney Reed, as new evidence is coming to the surface and over 2 million people have put their, and I'm one, put their name on a petition to stay the execution that's set for the 20th, saying, can this case enter back into court? Because there are some things that don't add up. And so he's been on death row for 20 years. Can we give it a couple of more months? So we we pray, because it's one thing to be in jail, it's another thing to be on death row, and it's an entirely different thing to be in jail and on death row if you're innocent. And so Paul was on death row, and he wasn't afraid to die because he said earlier in the book, he knows in whom he has believed, and he said that Jesus is able to keep everything I've committed to him against that day. And so uh, I'm prepared to die, and like Biggie Smalls, I'm ready to die. And Paul says in verse 9, excuse me, verse 6 rather, He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. A drink offering in the Old Testament was when there would be the morning and evening sacrifice that would be made every day at the temple of a lamb that would be slain in the morning, slain in the evening, every day to atone for the sins of the people, in addition to all the other sacrifices that would go on throughout the year. But every day there would be a lamb slain in the morning, a lamb slain in the evening, And after the lamb was slain and put on the altar and its remains were consumed by fire, then the priests would pour oil and wine out. And the Bible says they would pour out a hen of wine. Uh, Not a hennessy of wine, but a hen of wine. I don't know what the measurement of a hen was, but whatever it was, they would pour it out on the ground, signifying that the sacrifice was complete and the wine would be symbolic of blood. That blood was shed, and so the wine would be poured. And Paul is saying that he's like that drink offering. I'm about to pour out my life. I'm about to shed blood. What do you mean? Well, for the Romans, they would kill uh, prisoners of the state by decapitation, also by crucifixion. But in this situation in jail, Paul is speaking of decapitation, that he's literally going to lose his head and the blood would pour out of his body. So he's saying, I am being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. He's ready to go. He's ready to meet Jesus because he knows to die is gain. But I'm going to move swiftly to tell you that there are three things I want us to see in this final chapter of Paul's life. I want you to see the plea, I want you to see the people, and I want you to see the property. Three things, the plea, the people, and the property. And from this text, here it is. Here's the one thing this whole sermon is trying to say in case I don't complete it, and that is we will see what life should really be about. By reading these words, from the apostle Paul, before he meets his imminent violent death, we should see what life, or rather we we should see what life should be about by what he prioritizes. So the first thing is he has a plea. In verse nine, he says to Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly. Be diligent to come to me quickly. So this is a plea to Timothy. Who is Timothy? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul calls Timothy a beloved son. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul calls Timothy a true son in the faith. So Timothy is Paul's spiritual son that he met and circumcised on the second missionary journey that he took as he went out with Silas. And he took this young man whose father was a Greek and an unbeliever, but whose mother Lois and grandmother Eunice, they loved the Lord. But this young man needed a father in his life, and Paul took him with him on his missionary journeys, and he became his true son. Paul said uh, in 2 Timothy 1.4, as he wrote the letter from the jail, he said to Timothy, I greatly desire to see you. So before he dies, he wants to see His son. And four times in this letter, Paul keeps stressing how he wants to see Timothy. So there's this plea. And my question to you is, if you knew death was imminent and it was coming, most of us don't know when death will find us. But if you knew, who would you want to come see you? Who would you want to come see you? Before you go and see the Lord. Here it is. Life is not about accomplishments. And Paul had a whole lot of accomplishments. But life is not about accomplishments. It's about relationships. So at the end of his life, rather than talking about all the churches he planted and all the miracles he did and raising people from the dead, all that good stuff, okay. No, I want to see my son. Because it's not about accomplishments, it's about relationships. We can't take things to heaven. The only thing we can take to heaven is other people. Did you get that? We can't take things to heaven, but we can take people with us. So we need to stop valuing things over people. So it's a simple message, but it's hard to get because we prioritize stuff and things over people and relationships. And you may have 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 friends on Facebook, but when you're on death row or on your sick bed, you're going to find out who your real friends are, and I'm here to tell you, it ain't thousands. It's just a couple. Who are your friends? Who would you want to be there, and are you the kind of friend that somebody would want you to be there for them? Ah. But then secondly, we got to see the people. We see the plea. I I want Timothy. But here, the people, Strong Tower, in chapter 4, Paul mentions 18 different people. In chapter 4, 18 different people. And so, let me just mention a few of them to you. In verse 10, he mentions Demas. He says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. And so, Demas was a disciple that Paul may have led to Christ, helped disciple in the Lord. But there came a time where Demas had forsook Paul, even going deeper, he had forsaken the Lord, and he went back into the world. Ah, You do with that what you need to do with that. But here it is. Some relationships are messy. We have people in our lives, family members, who make a profession, but they live like they never made a profession. And they backslide. They do the Michael Jackson moonwalk, and they go right back out into the world. Then there's Luke. Paul said in verse 11, only Luke is with me. So he's in jail, and he says only Luke is here. And I love how God sets this kind of stuff up. Because Luke would travel with Paul as he would go on his missionary journeys. And Luke was a medical doctor. And Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So when you read Acts, you see these we passages where the author talks about we were shipwrecked. We did this and we did that. So God set it up where one of Paul's traveling companions would be a medical doctor. Why? Because Paul would get the mess beat out of him left and right. And it's good to have somebody on your team that can stitch you up from time to time. But beyond being a doctor, this man was a friend, and he was the kind of doctor that had great bedside manner. And he's proven it by being a a, a doctor who will stand with you when you're in prison. You're in prison, I am not, but I am not leaving you because you're not going to die alone. You're not going to die by yourself. But then we have Mark, he mentions in verse 11, where Paul says, get Mark, Timothy, and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Bible readers understand what happened in the book of Acts on the first missionary journey, where Paul and Barnabas were going on their first missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin, Mark. Mark comes, they go out, and there's persecution on the first stop. John Mark says, uh-uh, this ain't for me, and he went back home. So then come time for the second missionary journey, and Barnabas said, let me bring my cousin again. Let me give him a second chance. Paul said, absolutely not. He quit on us the first time. We're not bringing him out here. And so they had, Paul and Barnabas had contention over that, and they split up. And Barnabas took Mark, and Paul chose Silas. So that great evangelistic team was uh, divided and destroyed at that moment. And so what you see here at the end of his life, Paul is saying, go get Mark, bring him to me because he's useful for me. Now here's the idea. Some will say they had reconciled at some point that Paul and John Mark had reconciled. And so Paul is saying, bring him to me. Or you can read it and say, they didn't reconcile. And Paul just wants to do everything he can before he meets the Lord to make some relationships right So he's like, can you bring Mark? Because we need to get our relationship right. So either it was already reconciled or it needed to be reconciled. But the aged apostle who who was a little hard when they first started ministry softened up a little bit in life and and got more grace and mercy in his life. And he's like, I want to show it to Mark. Now, here's another question. Where's Barnabas? Could be that Barnabas was deceased at this time. But Paul is saying, bring Mark to me. Then there's Alexander the coppersmith. Because again, life, especially with church folk, can be messy. Look at verse 14. Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also, Timothy, must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Verse 16 says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. So here's what's going on. Paul standing before the Roman consulate and uh, the trial about, you know, who he represents. Is he a threat to the empire of Rome because he preaches another king named Jesus? All this stuff is going on. And Paul is looking for people to stand with him, to speak up for him, to speak up with him. But he says, there's no one to speak up for me. Why? Because being a Christian at that time was dangerous. They were killing Christians, throwing Christians to the lions for sport. And so Christians weren't stepping up to stand with Paul. And Paul even had to say to Timothy, Don't be ashamed of me or my chains. Because people were tempted. No, I don't want to be identified with you. They're about to kill you. I don't want them to kill me. Paul said, No one stood with me. What's up with Alexander? Well, Alexander resisted our words. What we can see from this is he may have been one who stood up as Paul didn't have supporters, but he had uh, people who were against him, and Alexander was one. Well, what's the deal with Alexander? Well, in the church at Ephesus where Timothy is, the pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul has to hand a man named Alexander uh, over to Satan. In other words, church discipline because he got caught up in some bad doctrine. He shipwrecked his faith. And so Paul had to hand him over to Satan. And so you have a man who was already going astray spiritually. Now he does not like the overseer, Paul, who would do this to him publicly. Now he has a chance in Rome to get back at Paul, and he's resisting his words, and and Paul has to say to Timothy, the venom he has for me, he's also going to have for my spiritual son, so watch out for him. But he's going to say, but may the Lord repay him according to his works. In other words, I'm not vengeance is the Lord's, but this man is an agitator. He's against us, and if, you've, if you live long enough, you're going to get some Alexander the Coppersmiths in your life. Who just hate you, who are just against you, especially as it pertains to your stand with Jesus Christ. And so relationships, it's not always tie a nice little bow on everything. No, there's some mess. There's some, Demases, there's some Alexanders. But thank God for the Luke's and the Mark's and all these other folk in here. Yeah. But I got to say another name out of these 18. And there's a name he mentions in verse 19 where he says, Greek Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Greek Prisca, that's Priscilla. And Aquila. So out of all these people, my man says, I got to acknowledge a woman in the midst of all of my uh, thoughts here. Because this is about God's diverse kingdom. And this woman who I'm putting her name before her husband's name, which is countercultural then as well as now. But what it says is he's acknowledging the gifts that are on her because there was a church, according to other scripture, that met in their house. Aquila and Priscilla, who are they? They are disciples of Paul, who when they heard Apollos speak, that brilliant orator from Africa, the Bible says in Acts 18, they pulled him aside and showed him the way of God more accurately because all he knew was the baptism of John. So this woman, Aquila, I mean Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, helped teach Apollos who would be a leader in the church. She had a teaching gift on her. She had a leadership gift on her. And Paul, who was an egalitarian, meaning that he believes that all people are equal in the sight of God, especially in the kingdom of God, he said, let me acknowledge this woman in my last words ever to be recorded. So thank God for the Priscilla's in our church who teach the word, who lead well, who serve well, who honor their husbands if they're married. Thank God for the Priscilla's. So here's the last thing I want you to see from this portion here. In verse 16, when Paul says, no one stood with me, all forsook me, he says, may it not be charged against them. So nobody stood with me. but He said, may it not be charged against them. In other words, I forgive them for not standing with me. I release them, which is what forgive means. I release you from the charge. Just like God forgives us uh, of the charges of sin, he releases us. He forgives us from the penalty of it. And Paul says, I released the people who didn't stand with me because I had unspoken expectations that were not met. And when we have breakdowns in our relationships, they usually come because we have unspoken expectations that don't get met. And then we have resentment that build up towards the people who let us down. And when that happens, we need to forgive. We need to release them. Because Paul is saying, I'm not going to go meet Jesus holding on a bitterness in my heart. And since we don't know when we're going to go meet Jesus, it would behoove us right now to do what? Forgive people. People who sinned against you knowingly, unknowingly, forgive them. Why? Because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Us. Who are we not to forgive? Don't have that stuff in your spirit. Let folk go. Release it. So who do you need to forgive before you die? Finally, the property. The property. Look at verse 13. He says, uh, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books, Especially the parchments. So it's the property here. He he said, son, when you come, stop by and get my coat from Carpus. Carpus thought I was giving it to him. I was just loaning it to him. You got anybody in your life like that, you let them hold something and they think it's theirs, they put their name on it and stuff like, no, i let you hold that. And Paul is like, look, winter is coming, he says in verse 21. These jail cells are already cold enough and damp Can somebody bring my cloak so it can serve like a blanket? So get my coat and my books and my parchments. So he's on death row about to die, and he's like, I want to stay warm, and I want to read, and I want to write. That's what he asked for, the parchments. Either these are scrolls of Scripture, which means he want to keep reading the Bible, Or they're blank parchments and he's going to write on them. So there are books, there are parchments in his coat. That's all he's asking for. What would you ask for? I had asked myself this. What would I want? I would hope I would want somebody to bring my Bible so I can read my Bible. But all the other stuff that we seem to put a lot of time and energy and even worship in, it doesn't matter at this moment. Why? Relationships are what matter most. The simple things are what matter most. And he says, man, bring me my books and my parchment and my coat. In conclusion, from Paul's experience, we see what life is really about. What's it about? Life is about people, not things. And then the things that we do have should be simple when you come down to it. Not all the, 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 the stuff we get enamored with. And if we have blessings, we shouldn't feel guilty about them. We just shouldn't worship the blessings. We should hold all these things loosely because we can't take none of it with us, but I can take people with me. Relationships, not accomplishments, are the most important thing. So how do I simplify my life? That's something we need to ask ourselves regularly. How do I simplify so that when it's time to spend time with my children, we can turn the television off? We can have conversations. We can build memories and not wish we had done more once they're gone or we go. Because on one's deathbed, you're not going to be thinking about all your degrees and all your accomplishment. You're going to be looking for your friends and for your family. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. That's what Jesus says. Life does not consist in things, the abundance of things. And as Americans, we have an abundance of things. So, Jesus, what does life consist in? Relationships. Because in prison, Paul lost his freedom, but he didn't lose his friendships. Friendships lost his freedom, but he still had his friendships. In prison, Paul would lose his head, but he did not lose his help from the Lord. What matters most are these things. Paul says in verse 8, as I close, I'm two minutes over. He says, uh, when I meet the Lord, he has a crown for me. not just for me, but for everybody else that loves his appearing, who's looking for him to return. There's a crown the Lord's going to give. So he's going to enter into that space and that place with Jesus through suffering. Ultimately through decapitation. But yet he has the strength to say, God's going to personally give me a crown. Now, I'm not the smartest dude in the room. But if you've lost your head, how do you get a crown? Must be something that's gonna happen. Y'all don't hear me right now, but from how you died to how you live. There's gonna be something that's gonna a transformation, a healing of the body, where the Lord is going to put that head on his body. And God is going to remake that body and turn it from something that was corruptible and able to face corruption to something that is incorruptible. God's going to do that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So you lose your head here. You get it in heaven. And not only that, you're going to get a crown personally put on your head from the master himself. And Paul would say it was worth it. Because don't you want to hear him say, well done? I sure do. I want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful. You may enter in because you accepted my son for the removal of sin. And he'll wipe those tears out of my eyes and I'll be living with God and no need to cry. And he'll pick me up and give me a crown. But I'll give it back to him and cast it down. At his feet while he's sitting up on the throne, God saved my life. I'm no longer my own. And he walks and talks to me. I'm never alone. He's the rock, y'all. And I'm sown in the stone oh what joy it is to have Christ inside to build me up where I'm weak and tear down my pride I was filthy like trash dirty sin would show but praise the Lord I'm washed now I'm white as snow I've been redeemed by the blood death has no sting spiritual songs and psalms all day I'll sing I'll smile through trials and walk by faith and on the God of Abraham I'll always wait and I'll preach this word even to the death and I'll praise the Lord with my last breath and I'll take this rap as far as it'll go and I'll witness for God until I'm six below but then i rise from the earth cause he rose first feel so good inside it feels like I'll burst with the joy of God this is no facade Him men good times and when times are hard Praise praising men good times and when times are hard Praise praising men good times and when times are hard can I get a witness in the house amen sobering well, let's stand for prayer. Now, when you go down, um, I'm going to ask the people that have children in the children's ministry to go first. Now, there are tables with five divisions, uh, your last name by alphabet, okay? If you have children, you get it to front of the line because we don't want to hear you talking about I couldn't go get my child because I'm in line. Don't be fellowshipping in the line and, and sitting on the tables and leave your kid Don't do that. Y'all go for, or if you got to go get your child, bring your child down. But what's going to happen is you have the line, find your last name, wait in line. And what they're going to do, you're going to, they're going to give you a a thing to sign. You're going to print your name. You're going to sign your name. You're going to be given a stamped envelope and it will be something for you to fill out and send back to the church. They're going to number that envelope so that when it comes back in, the number will match your name. We'll put it in the safe. We'll keep it there. Hopefully, we'll never have to use any of these things. Jesus will come back and get us tonight or tomorrow. We don't know, uh, but we want to be prepared in case he doesn't so that your family doesn't have to scramble, your church doesn't have to scramble, and we can uh, do things well and decency and in order. Uh, So let's pray, Lord. Thank you for this time together. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today that isn't ready to die, they're afraid of death because they don't have a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for that person or for those people. That they will trust Jesus, the resurrection and the life, the one who defeated death. And the one who can give them eternal life. If you're lost, you need to be found. Ask the Lord to be your God, to be your Savior. Ask him into your life. Repent, turn from your wicked ways and come to God. Give him everything you got. Give him yourself. It'll be the best thing you've ever done. If you don't have a church home, come talk to me. Maybe this is the church. If not, I can help you find a good church in this community. But you need a church home. Now unto him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. It's according to the power that's working in us. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and power in the church and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen. You're dismissed to the fellowship hall. If you can't do it today, we will have these tables set out for the next two weeks, okay? If you need to come by the church office to pick up, you can do that too.